Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode 31 of Birth the Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me I've got Dr Heather Matner. She's a perinatal health psychologist and a midwife and her background is in maternal infant and child health care, midwifery practice, research and education, models of care um, and reviewing home birth and continuity but you're also an honorary, so outside of your private practice you've also got uh, an honorary clinical senior lecturing position um, in the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide. Um, Welcome Heather, I really appreciate your time today. Let's get started with some of the questions um, because I've had a lot of interest, I I ran an earlier episode for those who are interested, flick back through and they'll see the link between um, that I did with someone specialising in trauma. Um, But I've had a lot of interest in birth trauma and I don't think it's coincidental that it's you know, that we have such high birth trauma rates. But studies mm. suggest, and we talked off air that you think it's a lot higher um, now during COVID, mm. the study suggests that uh, one third of women experience birth trauma. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like your comment first of all on that and, and perhaps mm-hmm. a bit of an explanation of what birth trauma is. Mm. Yep, surely. Um, just if I could digress for one minute, thank you for inviting me. Um, and I do need to acknowledge that I'm on Paramount land today, a unique group of people who live um, or originally owned their land in the Adelaide Hills. So I want to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, please. Thank you. Um, in terms of the stats regarding birth trauma, um, those statistics, and this is of no offence to the people who are involved in trying to collate them, they're just not reliable because historically we've collected statistics that sit around physiological trauma. We haven't collected statistics that sit around psychological trauma. There is in reality no definition in this country of what psychological trauma would mean. Um, Most people generally don't understand it. Um, I would revert back to the comment I made to you earlier that I would suggest at the moment nearly 100% of women are experiencing some form of psychological trauma because of COVID restrictions and that that is being dismissed and or trivialised and not seen as being of any great consequence. So a lot of people measure trauma in terms of the physical harm to a woman's body and whether that therefore inconveniences or um, changes the way she can live her life. But there isn't any recognition of the what can be often horrifically devastating psychological trauma for women. In terms of how I describe trauma, I speak about, um, I actually speak about birth trauma as perinatal trauma because there's a reality that in fact women can be harmed during pregnancy. They can be harmed, they can be harmed during pregnancy because people can just change a policy guideline in a blink. One minute they think they're in a group practice program, suddenly they're pushed out because they didn't agree to a test or something as banally ridiculous as that. 
So um, I look at trauma as in pregnancy, labour trauma, birth trauma, and a lot of women are profoundly traumatised postnatally. We just need to look at the experiences that women have around breastfeeding as one example and the psychological trauma that sits around that is horrendous. From my point of view as a definition, trauma is harm. It is physical, social, psychological, emotional, however you want to see it, harm that endures beyond the moment. We can all tolerate harm in the moment. We can tolerate harm that we can process and make sense of. But any harm that goes beyond the moment of our ability to understand and make sense of it across whatever domain it might be can be distressing, overwhelming, violating, damaging, um, and hugely, hugely impactive on women's lives and the lives of those who sit around her. And, yes, I think it is increasing. Yeah, it's pretty devastating that despite the World Health Organisation, you know, basic things like supporting physiological birth, having birth support, that the World Health Organisation said even during a pandemic this should be upheld, yet, you know, the system, the maternity system in this country and globally seems to be like a law unto Mm -hmm. itself and is just doing things Mm -hmm. that, as you mentioned earlier, like off air, do these, like, you know, does the system realise that these women are human? Like it's very, it's not just traumatised, like it it is not even treating them like humans, like to have to birth alone and things like that are absolutely mortifying. And if someone had told me at the start of COVID that this was even possible, I would have thought no (laughs) way can they refuse a woman birth support and here we are in year three of Mm -hmm. the pandemic and it's absolutely happening all over the country. Yeah, there's a sense, I think, that people would actually like that normalised because it would enable us to go back to, if I can refer to it that way, the dark ages where people didn't come into that room that woman is giving birth in and therefore um, people in the room sustain control of the woman um, and she's being denied a human right. A basic human right of all women is to be safe and we are not enabling women to be safe in childbirth in this country now. We are actually saying that COVID overrides the woman's basic right to be safe and therefore any kind of policy or guideline can be developed because COVID is the sanction, COVID is the justification and it it won't matter. Women will get over this and it will be okay, but women will not get over this and it will not be okay. But for a country such as Australia, we're supposedly intelligent, industrialised, for us to actually be able to say that the basic right of a human being, a woman, to be safe is no longer justified, is no longer of consequence because of COVID, is really appalling, really, really appalling. Yeah, 100%. It's absolutely outrageous. Um, So apart from the restrictions that we've talked about during COVID, Mm. what are some Mm -hmm. other things that contribute to women's birth trauma? Um, look, there's so many. If if we look at them maybe under grouping. So if we look at hospitals, for example, hospitals at the moment are under unquestioned pressure to get people in, get people done and get people out. Um, COVID legitimises that, normalises that and says we don't want people in hospitals because of the risk of COVID. We need to give beds over for COVID. 
oh, okay, so um, if you, you know, hear someone like me talking all the time, my response is women should never have even been giving birth in acute hospitals. That is actually not the place for women to be. These environments are full of risk. Um, Ivan Illich wrote so many decades ago about iatrogenesis. My goodness me, we must be having a plague of iatrogenesis at the moment. So if COVID is actually saying women shouldn't be giving birth in hospitals or, well, saying we need to keep well people out of hospitals, isn't this the best opportunity to actually say, let's devise some other model for maternity care, let's get maternity care out of acute hospital settings and let them actually do the job they're meant to do because they truly are counterproductive to what women and babies need in pregnancy, labour, birth and postnatal care. The whole tenets of funding, of policy and of ideologies is completely counterproductive to safe, healthy maternity care. That's one. <laughs> um, Clearly, if you've got that dynamic having in hospitals, there is going to be an effect on staff. And staff, I know, um, because I see midwives as clients, I don't just see women as clients. Staff are under increasing pressure and oppression to change the way that they work. And there really is a very clear dynamic at the moment that is taking people back to task-centred care. Now, I can remember nurses I looked up to when I was still training to be a midwife who were saying, we have to change the way we nurse because we can't do nursing tasks anymore. We have to look at the whole patient and we can't have someone doing a medication round at a pressure sore round. That is so wrong. If you go and have a look now into nursing environments, the way that they're functioning, and I'm sorry to have to say midwifery environments too, they've gone right back to task-centred care. So if we're talking about women here, it means that the whole context the woman is lost we are not keeping the woman in mind we are keeping in mind the things we need to do while she's here and we need to get the birth environment clear there are too many beds taken up in here we need to get women out we need to get through and of course what goes along with that is clock watching and that is one of the most dangerous things a maternity provider can do because when you're not watching I mean see when you're watching the clock you're not watching the woman and, you know, everybody knows what happens when that goes on. So there's that whole dynamic of staff. The other element that relates to staff is um, what happened to evidence-based practice and what happened to woman-centred care. I, I don't know where they've gone, but they're not, they're not in people's heads. They're not forefront in the way they're practising at the moment. And, yes, we talked earlier about episiotomy rates, which I despair at. You know, I thought we'd done so much research on episiotomy that we didn't ever need to do any more. The results were so conclusive. And yet we're back to normalising episiotomy. What, what is it, 20 to 25% of women in their first labour and birth are having an episiotomy. And I then see those women and they say to me, Heather, no one asked me. If they'd asked me, I'd have said, no, don't. I don't want that. I understand what happens if I tear and I am prepared to take the consequences of that because I understand that actually it's ultimately going to be better for me. So, you know, where's woman-centred care? Where's evidence-based practice? There's another dynamic in that that um, I think we're not seeing the same kind of people coming into, um, I think, obstetric care and certainly also midwifery care that we used to see. And not everyone is there because they genuinely want to be with and work with women. I'm sorry to say that, but I know it's true. Um, and within the dynamic of that, the whole nature of the way we're changing education of midwives means that 
midwives' ideology around being the person who wants to create that safe place for the woman, who wants to provide that protection with the woman, it just is being diluted profoundly as well. And in within that dynamic, unfortunately, there is an awful lot of bullying that's going on in maternity care at the moment. And, yes, as we talked about earlier, what do the oppressed do when they're oppressed? Um, how does that um, promulgate bullying? Um, some of the things that midwives are doing to other midwives that doctors are doing and doctors are saying to each other and to women, I totally despair at. And I, I find it astounding to think that these things are happening. The greater elements that sit around that politics and policies, policies becoming increasingly bureaucratic focused, funding focused, um, outcome focused, not focusing on the fact that women are human beings and they're not robots means, of course, your chance for trauma is going to heighten dramatically. And then the end result you get of that is, as I refer to it all the time, the terrible trade-off. It fundamentally doesn't matter what we do to the woman as long as the baby is safe. And that is so unacceptable. It is absurd because what is the good to the baby of a mother who is broken in whatever way she's broken? Yeah. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, I, no, I think that's great and it clarifies it really well. And you know, like we had talked about off air about this, um, you know, the internal justification that often care providers have. Well, you know, mm. that we, we saved, in inverted commas, we saved the baby. So, you know, the, the woman kind of, you know, who, who cares what's done to her because at least we yeah. did that. Um, so what are some preventative strategies that you think the maternity system needs to because we'd also talked about you said that um continuing midwifery care isn't you know this uh, silver bullet to fix birth trauma mm. we, know, we know that it, you know it certainly can help but but what else do we need to be doing to prevent and reduce birth trauma well, we need to do something about the acrimony between obstetric care providers and midwifery care providers um, because while that persists, it makes midwifery group practices everywhere in this country so fragile and vulnerable. In, in a blink, they can be removed or undermined or diluted. And for women, that basically says, well, this is just tokenistic. This doesn't genuinely matter. This isn't a whole of heart whole of commitment investment in you it's just a kind of thing that we're doing to keep you happy um, with that though you know we've really got to be thinking about the people that go into those group practices um, I know unfortunately from um, feedback that comes from women I should say I don't just see women in South Australia only I do see women um, in other states as well and a lot of rural and remote regions um, they're experiencing working with these women in group practices who really don't actually want to do that kind of work but see it as a kind of offshoot of midwifery that might be better than working in a hospital and working in shift work. That is not the reason to put someone in group practice um, because that means women are actually going to get some of the awful outcomes they're getting. And then I see them and they'll say to me, all I want to do next time is I want to have my own private doctor and I want someone who will listen to me. And what is the point of MGP if that's the case? The other element that sits around MGP that's so important, and I know we talked earlier about, I mentioned that I think the midwifery maternity care research agenda in Australia is very diversive, digressive. It's not unifying. Group practice models have got to provide a strong evidence around psychological care and they
strong evidence-based model. But those models do not provide strong evidence around the psychological importance of that model and how um, that model can continue to evolve and get better because of hopefully psychological advantages. But while that evidence isn't there, that really strong evidence, it makes those models really easy to pull down because they're seen as gimmicky. And we've really got to do something about that. It's so important. The other element of this, as I mentioned earlier, is we've got to get maternity care out of acute hospitals. It's absurd to have that in there now. It's a risk for women. You know, in, here in South Australia, women who've got COVID have to go to the COVID maternity hospital, but they can be at the other maternity hospital. So now the women are all terrified because they've had a model of care. They've gotten to know people, but at any moment they can be whipped out of that and put somewhere else like again it doesn't matter um, because acute hospitals are justifiably focusing on getting themselves ramped up and ready for COVID. Well we shouldn't even have women in those hospitals birthing. We need a different maternity system entirely. We need a different funding model. We need different policies and therefore what would go along with that in fact would resolve a lot of the issues that sit around mid-group practice because if we put maternity care in different settings we don't have to have these kind of lovely models for women we actually have the dedicated model that sits in that practice setting sorry that was a long answer again no but but um oh like so from a consumer i'll just put in my two cents worth because we yes, used to have please. the national maternity plan which emphasized community-based care out yes. in the community it doesn't mean that we're birthing under trees but you know like it's like a call the midwife style thing those who women who need to go to hospital still get to you know like we're not making it some kind of primitive thing it's what the evidence says no. we also had it no. recently in the maternity strategy we've had the medicare for private midwives which showed the exemplary yes. outcomes and again trying to get care back in the community yet like i yes. mean the hospitals can't even cope women are demanding no. at every state and federal yes. review women are saying we want care out in the community and like yeah. we like you know I, because there's still a lot of fear around birth so not every woman mm. is going to home birth, but but at least why not have no. your antenatal and postnatal care at home? Or, you know, yeah. in, a, in a like I often see these vacant CWA halls and I'm like, why are we not using the CWA halls to have mm. like a community-based antenatal, yeah. postnatal, you know, care, yes. more birth centres? Like, mm. we, you know, we've closed like I don't know how many birth centres around the country. Um, Just about all of them actually, unfortunately. Yeah. There's a, a rarity of very few around. I was going to say, yeah, you know, we still need to make available hospital care for women, but we need to do it in freestanding facilities and that are not remote from other hospitals. But we've got to get out of our head this ridiculous notion that a hospital is the only safe place for a woman yep. to birth in in Australia. Um, you know, I became very involved in some really significant issues around birth when I was working at Southern Cross University and did a lot of media work around that and continued to say all the time, and I'll continue to say it now, there is not one hospital in this country that can say to a woman, <clears throat> excuse me, come to us, birth with us, we guarantee you 100% you will be good, your baby will be good, and nothing can go wrong. So while we continue to hold birth up, hold birth, home birth up as something that's safe, unsafe and dangerous and say that hospitals 
are not unsafe and are not dangerous. We are actually being deceptive and deceitful and we have no basis for justifying that. What we've got to say is there is no perfect setting, but there are places that we can make better and safer and we are not doing that at the moment. We are creating greater trauma and more unsafe birth. And you've only got to look at the very, very low birth trauma rates in the home birth community. It is so, so low. I mean, I'm not uh diminishing you know women who have experienced home birth trauma yeah. um, not diminishing yes. their experience at all but but if we look statistically it has got the highest birth satisfaction and the lowest trauma rates and we can't mm-hmm. ignore that when we're you know we're, yeah. and i'm not saying like we as in consumers but it's the medical lobbying that are poo-pooing home birth and you know got this very rigid stance on the that and this is medical lobbying, so I'll distinguish again between good obstetricians and the medical lobbying, mm-hmm. but are so rigid in their stance on the only place a woman should birth is in hospital because it's, yes. you, you, like you said, it, it they can't guarantee the safety, but we can't ignore no. the high birth trauma rates that come from predominantly yes. hospital yeah. care. Yeah, and, and the vernacular that sits around that has lost the notion of evidence. We fought hard to get group practice models in because of good evidence, but we are not anywhere able to prove the evidence that sits around the safety of hospitals. You know, and as I mentioned earlier to you as well, Ivan Illich and all the work he did on iatrogenesis showed so long ago, and it's still happening now, people go into hospitals and we know they get sicker. People go into hospitals and we know they have infections. People go into hospitals and we know mistakes are made. I'm not in any way condemning staff. This is the nature of a big bureaucratic system that is not working optimally and is under huge pressure at the moment. But that is not the place to put people who are essentially okay, well and healthy and having a baby. We need to get them out of those places and to other facilities that can be funded differently, staffed differently, not get caught up in the bureaucracy of hospitals and actually mean hospitals can do their jobs really well, provide really good acute care for the people who need it and allow women to have the care that they want in those other facilities. The other thing I have to say that really irks me at the moment is we've got all these fantastic, and I don't know what they're doing in the state, but certainly in South Australia, we've got some really great hospital at home programs for patients and nurses, but we don't want that for women. Like what is going on in a system that can be so absurdly contradictory to itself and recognise actually the more patients we get out of hospitals and care for at home by nurses going to their homes, the better outcomes we're going to be, the less infection we're going to have, the less complications. But we keep putting women in hospitals and we keep traumatising them. Yeah, and that's yeah, where course, it comes but, down. Know, it's got to be about controlling women. And we've only got to look at recently yeah. the um, trying to get Medicare for home birth. And yeah. consumers all supported it. Of course, midwives did. We had great evidence, but it was medical yes. lobbying. A- and why yes. would medical lobbying even give a shit about home birth? Because they don't attend home births. So which no. just reinforces <laughs> it is really yes. about controlling women and their bodies yeah. Um, yeah. than anything to and, do with our uh, safety. Yeah, and there's, there's there's no evidence that that lobby are even using to say women have got a birth in hospital to be safer because it isn't actually there. So their voices are being heard, but there's no need for them to prove or justify themselves. I mean, why are we doing this? You know, do we get back to the dominant male ideology again? Um, is there a reality that, you know, the world will never really be a better place until women are no longer silent and invisible because women continue to be silent and invisible? And isn't that what 
what you want in the birth room. Be a good woman, sit on the bed, lay down, do as you're told, everything will be okay. Off you go, we saved your baby and now it will be fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, I, it's just, it's so backwards, you know, and we spoke about this. Like, it, it, And I don't even know if there's any other area of health that's as backwards as the maternity space. I think so. No. Don't think so. Other than some elements of um, gerontic care, um, some of the institutional elements of gerontic care, but they are trying really hard to change aged care at the moment. And I would say, in all honesty, I think the government's putting more effort into trying to change aged care than it is trying to change maternity care. And I in no way refute that there has been an appallingly desperate need for changing aged care. Some of the things, and certainly what we've had happen here in South Australia has been shocking to the core. But at the other spectrum, if we don't do something about those precious little beings coming into their life as much as we are trying to do something about those beautiful human beings who are seeing the end of their life, then we can never say we're a good country with a good focus on health because we've got it way out of perspective and we've got the balance all wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, An interesting topic that I had come across a couple years ago and have... Sorry, I've got some pesky. Yeah, I've got some pesky caller. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, yeah, I know it's a spammer. Like, just go away. Um, I should just. Block them but I, I found some interesting, um, like some interesting. Uh, a study a couple of years ago around women who've experienced previous trauma are more likely to experience yeah. trauma. But the study actually yeah. never really went into why. What's your yeah. take on why? Um, look, there are physiological dimensions to that. There are sociological dimensions to that and psychological dimensions to that. Um, if we go into the kind of, if you like, neurochemical physiological stuff, when anyone is traumatised, their limbic system is affected. And the limbic system, is, its other name is the primitive brain. So it's not our best element for us as human beings. But unfortunately, um, the design of our brains is such that the limbic system holds onto unprocessed memories. And trauma is an unprocessed memory because the reason we're traumatised is that in the moment we do not understand or cannot make sense of or have lost control over what's happening to us. I'm standing on the beach, I'm looking at a big wave and I'm going, golly, that's big. I think I need to run. I'm not going, oh, that's a tsunami. I get what that means and I understand what I have to do. I go straight into survival mode and that's because in that moment my limbic system is leading me but at the same time my limbic system holds on to that memory, unfortunately, in the same way it does if I'm in a car accident or a war zone or giving birth. Thankfully, our professor in Adelaide here at the Centre of Risk Studies acknowledges that birth trauma is on the same parameter as all those other levels of trauma. And we don't process these things. Our limbic system holds onto it. And there's some fascinating studies that have been done showing that if you do MRIs on people with trauma, particularly PTSD, the hippocampus in each of them is actually enlarged because it's holding on to all this unprocessed stuff. And so the work we do as psychologists, the work I do with women, is actually getting that stuff unpacked out of the limbic system so that it comes into their smart brain. They can then make sense of it and take control again, give meaning to this, and be able to actually gain wisdom and be stronger as a consequence. But for anyone who's had trauma, 
clearly we're going to have stuff sitting in the limbic system. And the limbic system has this other little structure in it called an amygdala, which likes to ring warning bells at us. Um, and it has no sense of whether we happen to be back in the birth environment again or, you know, maybe somebody just over in the corner said something about birth and the amygdala goes, oh, warning, 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 because um, what it's trying to do is protect us in that moment from something that's happened that we haven't made sense of. And at a purely physiological level, we will be triggered activated and the significant thing that comes out of that is fear high 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 level fear and huge elements of vulnerability and compromise because we don't have the mental prowess to even have processed what happened to us before let alone make choice about what might happen in the future what goes on with that then is significant self-doubt in being able to cope and feeling undermined constantly worrying about, I won't be able to do this, I can't go there, I can't hear this, I can't listen to that. What goes on from that? A lack of self-strength and a lack of self-belief. Um, clearly, there will be a lack of trust in medical and midwifery staff because of what happened. Because we, again, haven't been able to process that and understand that there can be people there we can trust. You know, we know if we look at babies that the most important thing to happen in the first year of a baby's life is it learns to trust. That was the best thing Eric Erickson ever said. Babies have to trust when they're a year old. Well, what do we do to women who've been traumatised and have no, they don't, they don't even trust in themselves, let alone trust in others because they are so depleted. They're so vulnerable to their own mental health as well as others. Because they can't make sense of that experience, they can't plan another experience. They're still completely drowning and overwhelmed in that bad experience. They've not been able to make sense of it, gain meaning from it and be strong enough to say, now I know what I don't want to do. Now I need to have help to learn about what I can and should do to take control of myself again, take control of my life again. When I use that word control, I need to be really clear. Women who have trauma are not control freaks who didn't get the birth they wanted. I hear that all the time and it is appalling. This is not about that kind of control. It's the basic control we have as human beings. That is our right to be ourselves, to make decisions, to believe in ourselves and feel strong. That's at the core of what happens with trauma. That has been compromised like or possibly even gone. Yes, yes, totally, totally. And you'll hear women say that they felt like they were sitting back almost a dead version of themselves, just seeing things happening around them. And, and they would say, I went to open my voice to scream and nothing came out. And, of course, they're the physiological dimensions of flight and fight that come from situations where we are so lacking in control. So we're talking about mental and physical health things that are severely jeopardised. It becomes a self-fulfilling philosophy for women, and this is a reason why many of them don't go on and have another birth. Bad stuff just keeps happening, and they, of course, would never want to endure that again. What should we be aiming for as a minimum? Optimal mental health and optimal physical health is a right for every woman giving birth. And at the moment under COVID, we don't even enable that. So where should women go, Heather, for support for birth trauma? Um, it's, it's obviously very prolific. You know, mm. th there's some groups that concern me a little bit that they re-traumatise women um, yeah. and, and reinforce yeah. that birth is inherently dangerous, which we know mm. it's actually not and it's no. generally due to mistreatment why women experience trauma. So where can a woman go who's experienced birth trauma? 
Look, we have a problem in Australia at the moment in that we don't have a lot of really well-qualified and well-experienced experts to be able to provide the support for perinatal trauma. And this is going to sound like a sell for myself and it's not. I'm sorry, I'm just saying the reality. I'm a midwife and a psychologist. A perinatal psychologist who has wood-proven expertise in managing birth trauma appropriately so that, and I say this to all women, from the worst of circumstances, you can still be strong. From the worst of circumstances, you can learn, you can have wisdom, you can realise how incredibly well you did to get through what happened to you and you can make amazing decisions. So, no, birth is not inherently dangerous. I disagree with that entirely. If it's dangerous, it's because of where it is or what's going on around it or who else might be involved in it. But no one can make that claim because it's not proven. So we need to do a lot more to improve the expertise of psychologists. General psychologists, if they're really sensible, and I know I've done a lot of teaching of them, will say, this is not our area. It needs to be someone who's really got the capacity with the end result of a woman being strong and wise having made sense of what's happened to her in a really sometimes brutally honest way. And, you know, you've got to really be very clever in the way that you do that, but also knowledgeable. Um, You know, I sat with a woman a little while ago and we went through her case notes. There were 19 pages devoted to her labour and birth. And in all of that, there was so much attention given to the CTG machine and so many other things. We found two lines in those 19 pages that made a comment about the woman, the woman and her well-being. And, you know, she just said, oh, no, I didn't exist in all of this. And I said, well, in a sense, you didn't know there were all these other things going on that were more important. So, you know, we've got to be able to help women to get the honesty and the understanding that comes from this, but clearly in a well-supported way. And not anybody can do that. I caution the use of the word counsellor because anybody can be a counsellor in in Australia. The title is not legally protected. So, you know, you can go along to a birth counsellor, but do they have the proven expertise? Not necessarily, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because I actually have a friend who is a mental health credited social worker and she raised that with me and I was really surprised that it's not a protected title like midwifery is. Like I couldn't claim that I'm a midwife because I'm not a midwife, but I could claim I'm a counsellor even though I've got zip zip qualification. So particularly when, like, as a counsellor or, you know, in that mental health space, how you're dealing with, Mm. like, you know, you could really damage someone and it's such a significant... Well, they do. Yeah, it's such a significant area of health to have to deal with. To to not have, um, like, a protected title is, I think, really dangerous potentially. Oh, look, I think it's a huge cop-out by the government. They just don't want to go there. Um, I mean, and all they've got to do is just enlist a piece of legislation that says you cannot call yourself a counsellor unless you've got appropriate qualifications. And then you must identify what kind of counselling you're doing. A counsellor, in theory, can talk, but they should not be therapeutic because they don't have the qualifications to do that. Mental health accredited social worker, mental health accredited registered nurse, mental health accredited midwife, psychologist, these people have gained the qualifications to do the mental health work. Then on top of that, they need another layer to enable them to be highly qualified and have the expertise to do the perinatal trauma, just like someone should have the expertise to do veterans trauma. I don't do that. Yes, I think I have a pretty good understanding of PTSD, but I would want that person to go to someone who's really got that explicit trauma so you know I guess I can make a comment as a psychologist and say I think psychologists should stop trying to be all things to all people yeah it takes a long time to be a psychologist I acknowledge that but 
I think psychologists should start to kind of refine down the work they're doing a lot more and really define their areas of practice more. Because, yes, then we would enable people to actually benefit even more from the work of a psychologist. So important. And lastly, um, because we're running out of time, but I've really... Sorry. No, no, don't apologise. I think it's been amazing content and I'm sure the listeners will get really good value out of this. Um, and I guess it helps educate me on this area as well um, as I'm recording and, and asking these questions on the podcast. But finally, Heather, why do you think birth has become or is the forgotten feminist issue? Well... If we say that feminist or feminism is about equality and rights and opportunities, I'd probably say, has it ever actually been a feminist issue? Have we ever actually gotten there? Have we ever actually had birth, meaning that there is equality and rights and equality and opportunities? I work with so many women and I cannot deny their voices and if I'm sure they were to answer that question, they'd say, we never got there. So it's not actually that it's ever been forgotten, it's that we never even got there. We're still trying to get equality and rights and there's a fundamental difference here in that women give birth and other people determine the rights and the opportunities. And until the women who give birth are seen to be, because you can't see me because I'm waving my hands around, sorry. Until, (laughs) sorry, you can, but everyone else can't. Until women who give birth are seen to be the owners of this, are recognised for their totally inherent ownership and that we should be dancing around them appropriately and strategically, it's never going to change. It, it, it won't be a forgotten feminist issue. It hasn't gotten to even be a feminist issue, let alone be forgotten. I'm sorry, that's probably not the answer you wanted. but No, everyone's got a truthful. different take on it, and I agree that it, it's never, like, you know, I, I think in my view, like when feminism picked up reproductive rights, you know, and abortion access and birth control access. Yes. Yes, it was yes. forgotten because we don't want to think of women as just being wanting to be mothers back in the kitchen. So it was trying to be liberated from being housewives. But in that um, push forward out of the house, we forgot that over 80% of women actually become mothers. So yes. <laughs> like, we do need rights in this space too. Um, I really appreciate yes. your time, Heather. And in the show notes, I'll perhaps pop some of your research and link to, I'm assuming your books are pretty full, but women might, um, you know, you might even have recommendations <laughs> for women who have trauma um, as far as accessing yeah, sure. some decent support as well. So thanks so much mm. for your time today. Okay, fine. Thank you, Alicia, very much. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses, I've got pre and postnatal yoga online. I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or reform perfectionist, that type A personality, and those who've been indoctrinated um, into that people-pleasing model. You can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.